And so then we looked at survival and surprisingly, I didn't think we were going to find much difference. If not, I thought we'd at least see some, some lower survival rates for the black things, but they had higher survival rates than gray animals. So our black animals were, I think, surviving at like 0.7 a year, like 70% of them were getting through the year. Whereas like, I think uh, the gray things was closer to 50% or something. I would have to look at the paper again, but um, our, our black animals had higher survival rates. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and today we're going to change things up a little from our normal deer discussion to talk about coyotes. And more specifically, we're going to talk about black coyotes. Uh, There's a great article in our fall issue of Quality Whitetails magazine that's hitting mailboxes as we speak about some interesting research that's been done around these unique predators. And I thought, hey, what better time? to get the lead researcher on the show to talk about those findings. So we're going to be talking with Dr. Joey Hinton of the Wolf Conservation Center all about black coyotes and the research he's done around them. Uh, Before we get started, though, this episode is brought to you by our newest NDA sponsor, PH Outdoors. PH Outdoors manufactures high-quality no-till drills in a variety of sizes from ones you can pull with your UTV up to a 10-foot model that requires, you know, at least a 120-horsepower tractor. Uh, they have crimpers from 4 to 10 feet. For those of you who want to plant food plots without the use of, of discs or herbicide, and all of their products are manufactured with the hunter and wildlife manager in mind. So you can check out their full line of products at ph-outdoors.com. Hey, and don't forget, we've kicked off our Gear for Deer sweepstakes that features just a ton of great prizes from our friends at Quiet Cat, Performance Outdoors, First Light, and Tethered, including a premium Illinois November rut hunt, either with a gun or bow, it's your choice, uh, the new Quiet Cat e-bike that comes in First Light camo, and over $1,500 in First Light gift cards, uh, as well as a few saddle hunting setups from our friends at Tethered. All the prizes were generously donated by those great companies, So all the money we raise will go directly to NDA's mission to ensure the future of white-tailed deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. Hey, this is one sweepstakes you definitely don't want to miss. So hit that pause button on this episode and head over to DeerAssociation.com slash gear for deer to get your chances today. And one more thing before we jump on the phone here with Joey, Uh, our friends at First Light are having their whitetail week this week and that's the week of october 2nd through the 8th so if you're in the market for some new hunting apparel for this deer season hey there's never been a better time to pick up some over at firstlight.com and the great thing is for every item first light sells in its specter camo pattern they donate a portion of those proceeds to the national deer association so you're not only getting the best camo on the market but you're giving back to conservation as well And guys, with that, let's jump on the phone here with Dr. Joey Hinton to discuss black coyotes. Well, hey, Joey, welcome to the Deer Season 365 podcast. Um, Before we we dive into the the world of of coyotes and and more specifically black coyotes, uh, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to study these unique predators? 
Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, happy to be on. Yeah, my name is Dr. Joseph Hinton. I'm the Senior Research Scientist at uh, Wolf Conservation Center. I go by Joey. But uh, yeah, I've been working with coyotes and red wolves in the Southeast since uh, 2002 when I was an intern. Did my master's in North Carolina at Rice University uh, studying red wolves and and uh, their space use, habitat selection, and pup attendance. Um, once I finished my master's, I joined Mike Chamberlain's lab um, then at LSU, but um, then he transferred to UGA where I finished. But we, we were studying red wolf coyote interactions in North Carolina, their general ecology, figure out what conditions in the field were facilitating hybridization between the two species. And uh, it, was, it was a pretty large-scale study across five counties that was about three-fourths the size of Yellowstone National Park, so it's like 6,000 square kilometers. And uh, we learned a lot of interesting stuff about you know, coyotes and the spatial scale which their populations sort of operate at. And Mike then sort of pitched that to the state agencies throughout the Southeast at some of these, I guess, deer working groups. And that uh, he, got, he got Georgia DNR, South Carolina DNR, and Alabama DCNR to sort of chip in on a, on a coyote project across the states there. And so we referred to that as the Tri-State Project. And that involved um, working with private trappers to, to catch, at the time, uh, 165 um, coyotes to put GPS collars on them and release them. It was like 55 per state. But then that ended up, we ended up relaunching collars again because we got a number of them back early off of, you know, 100 killed animals. And so the, the number of sampled animals is probably closer to 200 now. After that, uh, I did some. I did a postdoc up at SUNY ESF with New York DEC, estimating moose and whitetail deer numbers across Adirondack Park. And then from there, I got the Gulf Coast Project, studying coyotes um, along Texas and coastal, uh, coastal Texas and Louisiana, looking at red wolf ancestry in those populations. And and uh, once I finished up with some of that work in the field, I was applying for tenure track positions. Got offered a tenure track job, but then got offered this position at the Wolf Conservation Center. And I opted to take this one um, because the Wolf Center here is a, it's a nonprofit organization that's focused on the advocacy and education of, of wolves. Um, but they were looking to, you know, develop a, a research uh, lab there. And so that's why they asked me to, to join them. So I took, I took the opportunity to do that. So here at the uh, Wolf Conservation Center, um, they picked me up in 2021 and I, I initiated the research lab here. Um, we got our first hire, Sonny, as our research associate, and um, we've been continuing with the projects we've been doing in the past and trying to get some other projects going here in the Northeast with coyotes and some other wildlife. And so my first year here, I published that, that paper on, on uh, melanism in southeastern coyotes and red wolf populations. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, we, we one of the few research labs to, to really look at melanism in, in coyotes and try to find sort of ultimate and proximate causes for the occurrence of you know these black things in these eastern populations of course you know not having them out west yeah well good deal yeah we're definitely going to dive <clears throat> dive into that a, a good bit uh but but before before we do can can you just give us a little i guess background information on how coyotes you know really got established here in the in the eastern u.s to begin with because I know as, as a former state wildlife agency employee myself for, for two different states, you know, I, I got to hear all the conspiracy theories about, you know, how the, how the Fish and Wildlife agencies brought these things in and, you know, parachuted yeah, them out of helicopters and all that crazy, crazy stuff. So uh, can, can you speak to, to how they actually did become so prevalent here in the East? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wasn't. Yeah, they went. Yeah, the government didn't work with the insurance agencies to, to drop them in, airlift them in. So, yeah, it's. A, I mean, we spent a whole hour on on their range expansion. Um, I'll probably I'll try to get it down in a quick three five minute bit here. So basically, uh, the Coyote's core historical range at the time of European settlement or prior to it uh, was in the middle, like basically the, the mid and western parts of the U.S. Um, and the mid and western parts of southwestern Canada and then down into Mexico and probably into most of Central America. There's some questions there about what they're numbers look like when Spanish conquistadors sort of settled into that area of Central America. They could have been there in low densities. And then with the with the, the landscape being converted into agriculture and in cattle ranching, the numbers sort of popped up and they might have thought they moved in. But there's there's some documentation showing that they might have always been there. Um, and then that would have been considered the first range expansion. Um, the second range expansion was into the northwest areas of Canada and then into Alaska during the late 19th and early 20th century, which seems to correlate with uh, the gold rushes up there and then, you know, settlement and, and, and movement up there. Uh, they did that, interestingly, in the presence of gray wolves without any hybridization. So if you were to catch a coyote up in Canada, it's not going to have dog or wolf in it. Um, the eastern U.S. Is, is most recent. It's the reason why we focus mostly on, on, on that. It's just, one, it's just what we've been experiencing for the past 100 years or so. And so if you look at um, the canid populations that we had in the eastern U.S. at the time of European settlement, we didn't have gray wolves in Georgia or North Carolina or Jersey or New York or down in Florida or Tennessee. What we had were populations of red wolves. And it was with the extirpation of those wolf populations that allowed coyotes to, to move into the southeast and, and up in the northeast, too. So when you look at the coyote movement into the eastern U.S., there's two there's two main movement corridors. One is in the Northeast going along the Great Lakes region. And that is correlated with the extinction, not the extinction, but the extirpation of most of the Eastern wolf populations there. And so as they were destroying wolf populations around the Great Lakes, coyotes started moving in and they started pair bonding and breeding with like uh, Eastern wolves. And that's where the most of the wolf genetics come from for your Northeastern populations. So they came around the Great Lakes and went into New York, through Ohio, into Pennsylvania, and then settled into New England, the mid-Atlantic areas. Um, around the same time, um, we had uh, a pretty strong red wolf population along the Mississippi River Basin, down that into the Gulf Coast area. So basically, Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana. Um, those areas were the last stronghold of, of red wolves during the, you know, the 19, early 1900s. And there's probably a few thousand of them there. And so they were pretty much preventing coyotes from moving into the southeast. Um, of course, with major efforts, uh, there, there was there's some significant funding, federal funding for predator control programs, I guess, passed like in 1915 or something. So during the you know, late 19-teens and the early 1920s, there was major movement on eradicating carnivore populations, uh, most notably wolves and bears and, and cougars and throughout most of the Midwest. And so those populations got hammered. And then once most of the gray wolf populations were extirpated, they sort of started looking down south and said, oh, here's another wolf population. Let's go ahead and try to take care of those, too. And so predator control programs ramped up in those areas in the 1920s. And we started seeing wolf populations in Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, and Texas start disappearing. Um, and that's what sort of facilitated 
the first movement of the Cayuse to the east, the southeast particularly. And then, of course, uh, Louisiana then doubled down on their wolf populations in the 1930s and 40s and started eradicating the last few pockets there. And then once Louisiana opened up and became wolf-free in some areas, they started documenting coyote movements from Oklahoma, East Texas, and Arkansas into like the northwest area of Louisiana. And then they started moving through Louisiana into like Alabama or Mississippi and then Alabama and some other areas and they started pushing east. Um, and eventually um, both colonization fronts in the east met up, you know, in, in Maryland, Virginia, that area. Um, by the, the mid two thousand early early two thousands, I believe, and so that's um, basically the, the snapshot of what the the kind of looked like prior to Europeans and how it settled east. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. What I guess what was the barrier there? I guess in regards to coyotes and and red wolves or even eastern wolves, that just that they just didn't coexist very well, or you know. I guess competing or competing for the same food resources. I mean, what 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 was I guess that barrier to them being in the same place at the same time? Uh, it was they were geographically isolated, so they don't share space um, with each other. So coyotes have a different relationship with gray wolves than they do with eastern and red wolves because they they don't hybridize with gray wolves. They're reproductively isolated. So gray wolves can tolerate coyotes in their territories. So if you watch documentaries or where you just uh, have an opportunity to be out west and you can watch the interactions in the field, you'll see where, you know, um, gray wolves will kill a large ungulate and that carcass will be out there. Coyotes might show up on it, scavenge it. Gray wolves run them off and then go lay back down. Coyotes show back up, um, stuff like that. So the, the gray wolves and coyotes out west, their territories do overlap and they can tolerate them in and around their pack because coyotes don't breed with their offspring. They won't breed with their mates. It's different for red wolves and eastern coyote or eastern wolves because coyotes can hybridize with them. So they show no tolerance for these animals in their territories unless they're breeding with them. So either you have 100% overlap with a wolf and a coyote because they're pair bonded and they're mates, or you have zero overlap because they're not pair bonded with each other. And they don't want either one in their territory because there's an opportunity for the opposite species to breed its mate. And so they just don't tolerate them. So we don't we don't see that kind of overlap here in space use with uh, with red wolves and coyotes. So they're not competing over food. They're competing over mating opportunities and breeding territories. So as you can imagine, if you have a large red wolf population along the Mississippi River Basin there and some coyotes would try to migrate into the area, disperse in. They would encounter a lot of red wolves and the wolves wouldn't tolerate the presence at all and they would displace them or kill them. Um, the only way the wolf would want to sort of interact with a coyote friendly is if it's looking for a mate and it needs something to breed with. You know, that, that's what makes a, a relationship work between the two of them. And so that's largely why, you know, coyotes were kept out of the southeast and the northeast too. Um, if we if we had eastern wolf populations up that way, was that they, they can't coexist with each other. Okay. Yep. That, that makes sense. And what, what are some of the, the main differences, I guess, between the, the coyote and, and the red wolf? They are more similar than they are different. The primary difference is, you know, is, is mostly body size. Um, and red wolves are much larger than coyotes. Um, and so they are sort of obligate deer predators. Um, and they do maintain, you know, they are, they maintain packs. I mean, coyotes do too, but 
red wolves are, you know, they, they really rely on delayed dispersal. And so they meet their juveniles and hang around for a year or two to help with raising pups and, and protecting those territories. Um, and so they're, they're more similar in their ecology to what we traditionally think of as, as a gray wolf. The thing is, it's just that because they're bigger, uh, they have to rely more on deer. They maintain larger home ranges or territories. And um, they, aren't, uh, they aren't as tolerant and robust uh, with human mortality. So human cause mortality really does some serious damage to the red wolf's uh, persistence. You know, whereas with coyotes, they, they have high tolerance of it. They can compensate for it, I should say. Um, so their compensatory mechanisms for like anthropogenic mortality is, is a lot weaker. And I think a lot of it is due to their body size. They're just bigger animals. So they operate at a different spatial scale than coyotes do. Um, so coyotes are smaller uh, Western species, um, but they're, they're both North American evolved. So gray wolves uh, immigrated into North America uh, during the middle of the Pleistocene. I'm assuming it's like, you know, 15 or 20,000 years ago or something like that. It might have been here longer than that, maybe 80,000 years ago. But they didn't come into the U.S., our area, um, I think until about 15,000 years ago uh, with the extinction of the dire wolf. Um, at that time, uh, the coyote actually had a, a presence in the eastern U.S. So the, the coyote was wide ranging across the U.S. and southeastern Canada, coexisting with this really large uh American wolf species, the dire wolf, that was slightly larger than gray wolves. And there was, and because the dire wolf was so big and the coyote was so small, and there was this big gap there, it allowed an intermediate wolf to emerge, um, which was the red wolf. And so once the dire wolf went extinct, the red wolf became the predominant canid carnivore or canid predator in the eastern U.S. And, and because there was enough overlap between red wolves and coyotes in their niche, they couldn't tolerate them. So they're the primary reason why the coyotes was pushed back out west as the Pleistocene ended. And we went into our, our Holocene era. And so they have a long history of, you know, they, they, they diverged from a recent ancestor and they have a long history of, of coexisting here in, in the, the U, in, in, at least in North America, whereas gray wolves don't have that evolutionary past with coyotes, which is why they're largely reproductively isolated from them, you know. And so, so when people ask what's the difference between a a red wolf and a, and a coyote it's really it's just the size they're they're both i mean the red wolves are just larger and so they, they just perform differently in the field yeah <clears throat> and are, are there still is there still a viable population of red wolves in in the eastern u.s nah, not really so there's a reintroduced population in north carolina uh in the five county recovery area or recovery site um and that's where i pretty much like professionally as a, as a scientist grew up. I started there as an intern, master's, and then a PhD there. And so they, they initiated that reintroduction in 1987. And it's actually the first successful reintroduction of wolves in, in the world. There was a couple smaller attempts, I think in like Michigan or Minnesota and the one in Alaska that didn't work out with gray wolves. But this one was the first you know, large scale one and it worked. And so they were able to go from zero wolves to about 150 in 2005, 2006. But then the population declined and sort of stagnated at about 120 until 2014. A lot of it had to do with uh, human caused mortality, specifically shooting deaths during the hunting season. But there's also like roadkill and whatnot. Um, and so then some environmental groups sued the North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission over the nighttime hunting with coyotes and, and just created a lot of litigation. Um, going on there. And so the Fish and Wildlife Service decided to pull back some of the management and reevaluate the program. 
in the process of doing that, the population collapsed. It fell from the 120 that we had in 2014 to, I think, about eight or nine individuals a few years ago. And they had no oh, wow. reproduction occurring in the wild. But then through some court-ordered litigation, results of litigation, the Fish and Wildlife Service had to release some captive animals. And they were able to get some pair bonding with a couple of wolves out there, with other wolves. And so they have a population of I think about 30 or 35. So they have like 12 or 15 animals with radio collars on them. And then the remaining animals that make up that 30 or 35 total are pups from the previous year's um, successful like whelping reproduction. And so they are now recommitted to recovering the animal in North Carolina. Um, I'm part of the recovery planning team. In fact, we're meeting next week down in Raleigh to discuss um, coyote management and some other stuff. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're recommitted. And so they're going to hopefully build that population back out. And then they're looking for two additional sites, possibly um, somewhere else in the Red Wolf's historical range, which is mostly the southeast and the mid-Atlantic and then some of New England. Uh, and hopefully, you know, in a couple of years, they'll, they'll, they'll identify some sites and maybe have some, some other reintroductions. Yeah. Well, good deal. Let's, um, let, let's get into the, the specifics of, of your actual... <laughs> research on on as far as the the black coyotes um that that kind of prompted it was an article that you wrote for our magazine quality white tails that kind of prompted my interest in getting you on here and, and discussing this and so can you tell us a little bit about that project itself as far as you know what what kind of prompted it what what kind of questions were you hoping to answer and and how was it implemented yeah, so the, the black coyote stuff is completely opportunistic. I was not ever, I didn't ever anticipate writing anything up on that on that particular critter. Uh, so what what basically happened was um, with the red wolf coyote research, one of the the main hypotheses that I thought was facilitating hybridization was that smaller wolves would pair up with coyotes, and that the big wolves couldn't pair up with coyotes because they were just they couldn't make things work. Not not through, you know, population or whatever, but they just like when you're trying to maintain a territory and you're a big 75 pound male, and you're trying to make things work with a small 30 pound female. She's not going to want to hunt deer. She's not going to be able to maintain a home range of like, you know, 80 square kilometers or whatever. And so they just couldn't make things work out and they were divorced. Whereas these smaller females that are like 50 pounds. They could pair up with your typical 40 pound coyote and they can make things work. And that turned out to be true. Their size is sort of mating. And so I, I accumulated all this morphometric data and, and, published the paper with Mike back in, I don't know, 2015 or 14, maybe it was earlier than that, in Journal of Mammalogy looking at red wolves, coyotes, and their hybrids. And so I already had some experience looking at this morphometric data. And so then I had, and then we started the Tri-State Project. And so then there was, you know, almost 200 coyotes captured there, and we had all this morphometric data. And then we had morphometric data from other projects. And then, of course, you have the literature. And so then I wound up publishing a paper looking at the coyotes, looking at geographic variation, coyote morphology and genetics, then like ecology and evolution back like in 2018 or something, maybe 19. And, um, and so we found that you had three distinct populations. You had your Western population, you had your Northeastern population, you had your Southeastern population. As people would assume, your smallest population in terms of average body size are your Western coyotes. Your largest ones were in the Northeast. And then the small, the, the intermediate ones were here in the Southeast, except for the ones that are along the Gulf Coast, because those animals are hybrids, basically. They have a lot of red wolf ancestry in them. So those are big coyotes down there. Um, but again, like 
I had color morphs with all this data and I felt like I needed to write up a paper just looking at these black things and, and comparing them to your typical gray coyote. Because in my experience handling them, they just felt smaller than your gray coyotes. But I knew handling the morphometric data, that wasn't true. It's just that they're black and so they just look more sleek. They just look slimmer. And so you just have, they just appear smaller when you have them in hand. And so I was like, ah, oh, what the hell? I'll just try to write something up. And so I did for general memology. I, you know, I had this large data set and compared the morphometrics of gray coyotes, these black things. And then look at their space use because we had radio collars on a number of them and their habitat selection. Jay, ma'am, I got two positive reviews, but the AE didn't care for the paper for whatever reason. So he kicked it out. And I was like, all right. And we wound up submitting it to BMC Zoology. And since I had a second chance at the paper, I wound up doing a survival analysis on it too. And, and we just beefed it up. One of the reviewers from the Jay, ma'am, uh, submission said, hey, look, you don't really have a strong conceptual background to the paper. You just seems like you're just doing a natural history paper here, which I was. And I was like, all right, in this case, when I resubmitted it to BMC Zoology as a new, you know, I, I just went ahead and included a more theoretical background looking at Glogger's rule, you know, which is a major uh, eco-geographic rule uh, stating that like animal coat color um, becomes darker in areas where you have a lot of canopy and human environments. So it's darker and warmer. And so animals are more, it's more advantageous for animals to be darker in those environments. And as you come out of those areas and go in areas with less canopy cover and drier areas, they have lighter coat colors. I was like, all right, well, I can, I have all this space use, I have this distribution data and whatnot, I can look at that. And so that's what I wound up doing. And so the thing here is, is yeah, we found that we had like, I threw the red wolf data in there too. And so, um, and the hybrid data there too. And so we had morphometric data on like almost 1200 animals, I think. A lot of it was red wolves, good chunk of, of, of hybrids from the North Carolina reintroduction area. And then of course the coyotes spread out across the Southeast. And we found that um, it didn't matter what state you were in. Um, they, they made up a low proportion of the coyote population. So like on average, I think it was like anywhere from five to 7% of a coyote population is going gonna, is gonna to comprise of like black individuals. And in the recovery area, black hybrids were like at 8.5% or something like that. So they weren't a big, they didn't make up a big majority of, of animals in an area. And then we looked at um, their morphometrics and we didn't see any size difference. So what you're looking at is an animal with just a different coat color in terms of the size of their head, how tall they are, their body length, you know, their foot sizes, stuff like that, no difference. They're, they're the same. Um, the major, the major driver of coyote body size in the Southeast and particularly the Northeast too, is, is wolf genetics. So the more wolf ancestry an animal has, the more likely it's going to be, you know, bigger. So then once we were able to distinguish whether, or basically we were able to, you know, see there that there was no difference in morph morphology, you know, we had a number of them with radio collars on. So it's like, all right, well, let's see if they're behaving differently and in, in the wild or whatever. And so we looked at that and we did find differences there. But one primary difference with the radio collared animals was that the black animals maintain much larger territories. So they had larger home range sizes than, than the neighboring gray animals did. Um, and then we looked at the habitat composition of the territories. And there wasn't much difference in habitat composition or what the territories are made up for, but the black animals were selecting considerably stronger, really like selected for canopy cover areas. I mean, they, they, it was a magnitude of difference of like, I think like 
the selected coefficients for gray things are like 0.04 or something like that. And then like for, for the black things, it was like 0.24. Like they, they were just hammering areas that had lots of canopy cover. They preferred areas that had forest um, cover. They didn't like agriculture. So the gray animals are going to agricultural fields or, or pastures and hitting open areas and staying in and around those areas, whereas your black things are, you know, more or less staying in heavy canopy cover and like your coastal bottomland forest and riparian areas so they like dark areas and so that that backs up the gloggers rule so i was like oh shit this is great like, this this is working out for me and so then we looked at survival and surprisingly i didn't think we were going to find much difference if not i thought we'd at least see some some lower survival rates for the black things but they had higher survival rates than um our great gray animals uh the, the caveat here is that so it was a small sample size but still seeing that that's this little signature in a small sample size i thought was pretty good so um, our black animals were, I think, surviving at like, I don't know, 0.7 a year, like 70% of them were getting through the year. Whereas like, I think uh, the gray things was closer to 50% or something. I would have to look at the paper again, but um, our, our black animals were, were surviving. Uh, they had higher survival rates. And then, you know, that wasn't surprising given that they're sort of in these darker, can't be covered, environments they're probably more concealed from hunters and trappers than, than our gray things are um, which is the primary source of mortality for coyotes but what's interesting though is is that they had much larger home ranges and so you would think that if they're maintaining large home ranges they're incorporating a lot more you know they're, they're more likely to come across tree stands or hunting towers they're more likely to hit trap lines or cross roads um, so there's more mortality risk in that 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 larger territory than say a smaller area and but it seems like the camouflage seems to be a trade-off with them um, in that term. So they can probably maintain these larger home ranges and the camouflage offsets or compensates maybe for the, the, the higher risk that they might have in maintaining a larger, larger territory. So I guess the take home is, is that they're the same in terms of morphology, but behaviorally our, our black coyotes really like um, dark canopy covered areas um, and they maintain larger home ranges. So outside that, we don't have much info on their diet. The problem here with studying black things is that there's so few of them on the landscape. There's only like, like I said, five to seven percent of population that uh, that's going to be black. And so if you want to do a study and you need to catch animals that are black and have a large enough sample size to really get at these sort of robust estimates, you need to do, you know, you need to do a lot of trapping across a bigger area. So this is like the data set we had was combined over like several projects over like 20 years that we were able to squeak out some some decent you know sample sizes um so for a study that's like three years that's looking at monitoring 50 coyotes in a county you're probably not going to catch enough black things to do really really do a, a strong like analysis between gray and black you might be able to get some good anecdotal data off the black animals you catch but if you're catching 50 animals you're probably going to catch like three or four black things yeah yeah well i guess kind of going back like historically or, or evolutionarily however you want to say it do, do we know i mean what what are the origins of these black coats or do we know i, I think you mentioned earlier that you don't see or, or did you mention did, that you don't see these in the western population not yet i mean they, they, at some point they might be making their way back out west slowly but prior to their um you know, prior to them moving east, no, they were pretty much absent. Um, so, so melanism in North American wolves and coyotes. Uh, so the distribution of melanism 
in these populations were just restricted to great wolves in the boreal forest of like Canada and then some areas coming down into the U.S. Um, the wolf, the great wolf populations we had in the, in the, the Great Plains and parts of Western U.S. Uh, did have black individuals, but I, I don't think they made up a large proportion of the populations. Um, most of the black wolves were, were correlated with or occurred in, in those boreal forests. Coyotes, uh, melanism was absent from them. Um, as I mentioned with the, the, the Young and Jackson, the Clever Coyote book from 1951, they had looked at the distribution of coyotes at that time, at mid 20th century. Um, and they had noted that coyotes had made inroads into the Great Lakes region. And there was a number of occurrences of coyotes throughout the Eastern US, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Maryland, Virginia, Alabama, Florida. So they were, they were popping up here and there. So despite you know this wide ranging distribution of coyotes in the Western and Midwestern areas of the US, Canada, into Central, like Mexico, into Central America, and then occurrence is, you know, isolated occurrences in the East US, they didn't find any, any black animals. Um, the red wolf, on the other hand, had historically been known as a, as a, as a wolf uh, species with uh, lots of black occurring individuals throughout its uh, southeastern range. Um, so early colonists like Bartram, who who were naturalists, recording what they were seeing um, during during the like late 18th century, had noted that uh, red wolves throughout Florida and parts of Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi were predominantly black. And so he had he had assigned them a species name of like Lupus niger. And eventually, um, as as they got the taxonomic stuff worked out in the early 20th century, um, Young had classified or Goldman had classified the red wolf as as Canis niger, a separate species, um, and noting that the predominance of black individuals in those southeastern populations. But because Bartram's work wasn't considered valid by the the Society of Nomenclature or whatever, whoever was in charge of taxonomic names, they had um, they had invalidated Canis niger. And so they had renamed the red wolf uh, Canis rufus, and so, so that's how that's how. So we know historically, red wolves had large had a large number of, of black individuals throughout the southeast from historical accounts. And so uh, once the, the the red wolf population started dwindling um, in the 1930s and 40s, about a few years after the Clever Coyote got published, uh, the first papers reporting black coyotes occurred like in 1959, 1960, 1961. And they were federal biologists, I think with the Fish and Wildlife Service in Eastern Oklahoma, noting the occurrence of black coyotes popping up in areas where red wolves used to be. And so basically, you know, you're seeing these wolf number, these wolf populations sort of get extirpated, disappear. Coyotes are moving in and people are documenting the last remaining red wolves outbreeding with coyotes. And so the last few remaining black red wolves began outbreeding with coyotes as they came in. And that's how you got black coyotes, particularly in the Southeast. And it seems to hold up, you know, so now you're seeing this geographic distribution of, you know, black coyotes moving or coyote populations moving into where red wolves used to be. We're documenting hybridization. And then you start seeing these black coyotes start occurring. And then of course they start moving out of those areas and start spreading into other areas, the Eastern U.S. And that's when they're spreading those, those sort of, the sort of genetics. Uh, that mutation at the Kalo side that would um that would be responsible for the black coat, and that's how that's how that's why eastern coyotes have it, in my opinion, and, and western coyotes don't. Um, people would argue, well, they got it from you know they got it through hybridization with domestic dogs. They could have, 
we have black wolves in the southeast and just that's what we're documenting we don't document any hybridization with uh, uh with coyotes and and dogs in the wild i've never caught a coyote running with a dog or anything like that or breeding with them and gray wolves um you know in eurasia you know black animals are, are very rare if you see one you get a publication out of it because that's how rare they are um in italy i mean they have or parts of europe they have um pretty high hybridization rates between domestic dogs and and gray wolves and you're not seeing um a large number of black animals pop up because of that um and so uh, trying to make sense of why eastern coyotes would be carrying this particular unique trait and other coyote populations wouldn't be it just makes sense to me that they got it from hybridizing with this historically, you know, this, this, this wolf species in the Southeast that historically was known to have black individuals in it. And they likely got it from that and not via domestic dogs. Yeah. Do we, do we know how strong of a trait this is? I mean, if a, if a black coyote breeds with a, a standard, you know, gray or, or black or gray or brown coyote, you know, how, how likely is it that, that, some of the pups or all the pups will be black. I, and locally, I think they do. You do have, if you have a black animal move into an area and it starts breeding, um, they'll, they'll have mixed litters. I mean, it doesn't. Um, so it's, it's the black coat can be, it's a dominant, it's a dominant allele. And so it's kind of like your typical Mendelian, you know, heredity sort of thing set up where, you know, if you have two individuals that are um, dominant black alleles, um, they will create all you know black animals but if they're recessive or hetero hetero what is it heterozygosity or hetero whatever you know where it's like they have a mixture of dominant recessive they can have a mixture of pups and so yeah sometimes they, they can they can sort of um create uh, a, a litter of black animals you may have a pack of black animals but a lot of times what i've seen is that they're they're sort of mixed packs you'll you'll have a black individual with a brown or gray individual and that they'll have a mixed litter um, other times you can, I'm assuming if you have two black animals pair up, they'll create two, they'll create all black, all, they'll have an all black litter. Um, but I've, I've never seen that, um, in the wild. I've just seen mixed pairs and whatnot. Interestingly, like one of the first, um, the first black hybrid that popped up in North Carolina was between a red wolf and a gray coyote. At least that's what the pedigree, you know, the, 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 the stud book suggest the, the event table looking at you know who who bred with who and whatnot and so you had a red wolf breeding with a gray coyote and somehow you, you had this mixed litter um it's one of the first first times that i saw on the records where they had had black coyotes pop up in the, in the recovery area so i i think it's something that probably needs more investigation because you know most of the research has been on gray wolves particularly gray wolves in yellowstone and those animals were captured up in alberta i think outside jasper national park and relocated into Yellowstone. So they aren't like the historical animals that occurred in Yellowstone. So their melanism, the occurrence of black animals there and the, the things that are, I guess, um, influencing the persistence of black uh, coat colors in Yellowstone may not have been operating on the landscape 200 years ago when you had a different population of gray wolves there. And it may be the case here in the Southeast too. It's, it's a different landscape. And so looking at the historic documents, records for red wolves, it looks like what few data we have, you know, you know, it looks like 25% or so of the population, maybe even more of our historic red wolf population was, was black. And we're not seeing that with the coyotes that have replaced them. It's, it's at a much um, lower uh, proportion of the population. And so something's going on there. It's, that's a bit different. It could be a different landscape. 
or it could be an interaction between body size and coat color and how the, how, how the animal benefits from it. Um, as I mentioned, black coyotes are already maintaining a large home range size, so they should be exposed to more mortality sources or mortality agents on the landscape from increased spatial use. And they're compensating for that. So if you added another 20 pounds on them, you know, they may have to wind up maintaining a larger home range. And at that point, they can't compensate for it. And so they're, they're probably killed at a higher rate and removed from the population. Or it might be that they, um, they might be interacting with how they, 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 their success with eating deer or preying on deer. The bigger animals can probably benefit in a deer obligate and they may have to hunt deer anyway. And there may be a benefit of being dark in those dark environments. I don't know exactly what, what light spectrum deer can see on and where they might not be able to detect these carnivores when they're moving around for black, but coyotes are small. They don't really, I mean, they eat deer and they can kill adult deer and stuff like that, but they're not, they're not hitting them like a, like a red wolf or a gray wolf population would. And so there might be some interactions going on between coat color and morphology and ecology and stuff like that, that may limit it. So, but it's there, it's persistent. It seems to sit at five to 7% regardless of where you, where they are, whether it's, you know, Louisiana, Georgia, North Carolina, um, Florida, you know, Arkansas. Uh, so it, it might be just a, it may not have any significant effect on coyotes. It just may be like a neutral trait that gives them no benefit or no, no harm. Like there's no, there's no, you know, nothing there. And so it just sort of, it's a, sort of an allele that just sits in the population that just passed on. And that's that. Yeah. Any, any theories going back to the, the larger home range size and any theories as to why that is, is that just a, a remnant of the, the red wolf genetics or yeah i you know no there's not because i think we're the first ones to um point that out because you know nobody i mean so looking at melanism some of the earliest papers on melanism in eastern canids was paul i think paul gibson did his work like in a, like 1976 or something like that in arkansas and then there wasn't any more research on black coyotes until um danny caudill Cattle, Cottle, I'm butchering his last name. When he was in Florida, FWC, but now he's with, I think, Alaska. Him and his, I think his wife had published a paper on black coyotes throughout the, the Southeast or Florida. And then, and then we followed up a few years later with this paper. There's only been like three papers on, on black things in the Southeast. And um, we're the first ones to have radio collars on them and look at their behaviors and sort of detect that they had increased space use. And I mean, I wasn't surprised if they are using what I would consider lower quality habitats, these sort of heavily canopy areas that are mostly wet and, and uh, forested, as opposed to your more productive, like open edge areas that the coyotes, the gray ones really like. And so there's gotta be a trade-off, right? If you're in areas that are low quality and maybe prey distributions sparse or spread out, you're gonna have to maintain larger home ranges to get food. And it works because they're, they're black. And so that increased space use just sort of, um, they can do it because they, they, it's harder to see them. And so, you know, when they're moving around at night, these Eastern coyotes are not active during the day. I mean, they're overwhelmingly active at night because they're hunted. So the black coyotes are doing the same thing gray coyotes do. They stay loafing and covered for most of the day. Once it gets dark, they come out and they start running their territories. And so being out at night and black and moving extensively, across areas is probably good for them um, in terms of camouflage. And I think that's the trade-off is that, yeah, we got to maintain large home ranges because if we're in these open areas, we get shot. So we got to go to these dark areas. And, um, and so that 
so it allows them to survive at a low low frequency in the population yeah so uh, other than other than you know the obvious color difference and home range size no no uh, you didn't you didn't notice any other uh, physiological or behavioral differences between them and and normal colored coyotes not yet no no not yet (laughs) We, I was, I, I was kind of hoping we, I mean, eventually, I mean, we should do some genetic work on these animals. Um, I just, I don't know if the sample size is there, if there's just not an interest in it. I'm not a geneticist. So, I mean, obviously I can't look under the hood like that. And so, I mean, we're open to having, um, collaborating on that. We have blood samples on all these animals, you know, um, so it's, it's there. I'd be interested in looking at, yeah, the, the, you know, how much wolf and dog ancestry are in these, these black things and, and try, try to deduce that. So in the paper that we published in the, in, in BMC zoology, I did take a stab at suggesting that the dog hybrid, the, the dog alleles that we see in Eastern coyotes is tied probably to captive breeding of, of dogs and coyotes and not wild hybridization. I, I've rarely, I mean, I don't, I, I shouldn't say rarely, I've never encountered coyotes running with dogs in the wild. Um, everything I've caught are typical coyotes. If it looks like a dog, it's a dog. Um, and so what I have encountered is people who have kept coyotes as pets and who have bred them with dogs. And in fact, the one study from like 1971, the only studies we have in the 70s of coyote dog hybridization was done by scientists in captive settings we don't and that's that so the only real hybrids that we've we have documented are are bred by humans and interestingly the mangle paper from 1971 he was running it the experiments at his house breeding coyotes with beagles and he had to shut the study down because his boy dogs escaped <laughs> and, oh, no. and then he complained that the neighbors were, were upset with them so in the, in the in his paper he said like look these things escaped we didn't recover them my neighbors are kind of pissed at me about this. Uh, I'm going to shut down and then included <laughs> his paper. Yeah. And so, like, yeah. And so, it's, and then we had done a survey recently with the folks who have sent their blood samples of their dogs or whatever, not the blood samples, but like they sent samples of their dog's DNA into Embark. And we've collected a database of like 60 to 70 people who have koi dogs that they've bred in captivity and stuff. And so looking at like the common breeds that are, that are being bred in captivity with coyotes and then figuring out, what these things look like and they're how often they escape. My, my assumption here is that the hybrids that look like deformed beagles, if they get 20 yards out of the backyard, they're not going to survive. But the people who have managed to crossbreed their dogs with coyotes and create coyote looking hybrid things, if those things escape, they probably have a higher chance of back crossing into the wild population. And I think that's where some of the dog genetics is coming from. I think it's, it's leakage from our captive breeding or shenanigans. And not so much these animals pair bonding with your border collie or your or your Doberman or your Rottweiler or whatever, and creating hybrids out there. And so that's some of the stuff we're working on now. And I, I think yeah, getting at that would help clear up a picture of what's going on with coyotes and what how they're actually are interacting with domestic animals, which I think would help agency folks with understanding are there koi dogs out there? Which, in my opinion, if there aren't any koi dogs out there, you have coyotes with some dog ancestry in them but they're not koi dogs okay yeah that, that's interesting because I, I, I guess you know i've always heard you hear so much talk about or reference to, to koi dogs and and i just assumed you know that a lot of that was going on out there you know that that, that these uh 
coyotes were, were occasionally breeding with with domestic dogs, which that's interesting that it, it's probably just you know humans doing the uh, the crossbreeding. Yeah, that's, that was. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's absent completely. I'm sure maybe once in a while there there might be some some crossbreeding, but it's. I mean, I like I said, it's so. I think it's so rare that it can't. I don't. I, I mean, yeah, I, I think a lot of it's. It's got to be controlled, in my opinion, because I just don't encounter it, and we have so many coyote studies occurring across the eastern U.S. And I, mean, I think there was a recent publication, like Bridget and some of the guys from the Gotham Project in New York City had documented, a, I think, a 50-50 hybrid, like a, basically an F2 hybrid or an F1 hybrid dog coyote breeding with a, a pure coyote in New York City. But again, we don't know where that F1 came from. They don't know if it was a lost pet or something like that, because like what we're seeing with Embark, people have koi dogs. I mean, there's we have a couple of reports of koi dogs in Germany that people have. So it'd be pretty crazy. Some folks in, in a few years in, in Europe are like, oh, our, our gray walls have, you know, coyote on. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, you know, probably the pet trade. Yeah, it seems like we uh, as humans have a way of you know, yeah. distributing things where they're not meant to be. <laughs> Plants and animals. So, so is is this something you're still actively working yeah. on and and studying, or is it kind of something yeah, you, you've kind of wrapped up? Yes and yes and no. I mean, like I said, this is sort of the black stuff is opportunistic. It's just the data set. I have a large enough data set to sort of look at these questions and sort of try to address them. But in terms of coyote research, uh, we're still pursuing that. I mean, the big project that we have right now is along the Gulf Coast in Galveston Island, Texas, and then in um, southwestern Louisiana, looking at those candidate populations there, um, seeing how much red wolf ancestry is in them. And there's a lot of red wolf ancestry in them. In fact, that we refer to them as the Gulf Coast candidates because they're not, they're just not coyotes, but they're not red wolves. And so we don't, we haven't really classified them yet, but they're definitely like, to me, they're definitely like hybrid things. And so they're, they're large, they're larger than your typical Northeastern coyote. Um, when you get into some of these remote areas on the wildlife refuges, you know, your smallest females are like 44, 45 pounds. The males are pushing 50 pounds. They're big animals in terms of coyotes. I mean, they're nowhere near as big as a red wolf, but they're, they're large. Um, and in fact, I caught, I caught a, a black pup down there and Cameron Parish, and uh, it was the largest black coyote that we had caught, uh, that I had records on. I mean, morphometrically, it measured out everywhere to be the same size as a red wolf, except for its head. Its head was small, and it's more coyote-like. Um, it was like 20 by like 10 centimeters as far as its length and width. But in terms of its shoulder height, it was like, I think it was pushing 70 centimeters, which is on par with a red wolf, and its body length, its hind foot length, stuff like that. It was it was basically the size of a small female wolf. And, and, you know, typically your, your average coyote is like 57, 58 centimeters tall, I think. And so this is, this thing is, you know, pretty big. So like I said, the, the red wolf ancestry is going to be driving that, that body size and the morphology more so than the coat color. But in my opinion, that coat color was, was acquired through hybridization with red wolves. And so I think these black things are probably, important for maintaining the populations um red wolf ancestry somewhat you know where, where they are they may have higher ancestry levels but in terms of colonization um, you have to remember too um when these coyotes moved into the southeastern u.s during the, the 40s and 50s and 60s we had very low deer numbers uh, in fact we had low game numbers in general a lot of our i think our recovery or reintroduction 
programs for, for game species were occurring at that time. And so coyotes are moving into a relatively poor, like, like prey poor environments. And so it might have behooved them to have this black coat because if they had, you know, if the black coat comes with some, I don't know, genetics that influence their metabolic demands and they could fast longer, move longer distances, they could probably seek out food patches and, and, and traverse the landscape further to find other coyotes to then pair up with and breed with to maintain like population structure, metapopulations and stuff like that. So there might have been a big benefit for them early on during the colonization front uh, movements there. Um, and then over time, as populations became established and coyotes became more ubiquitous, the gray coat color was, was relevant because then they're hitting your agricultural areas, your more open areas and doing better there than the black things were. But like immediately once the coyotes started moving east into Oklahoma and Arkansas, the researchers started seeing black animals. So it was one of the first traits they picked up. Um, and so I think there's a lot of room there to, to sort of look at what the trait means to the animal in terms of persistence and, and whatnot. And what it's doing today and how it's being maintained today may not be the same reasons why it first occurred in the, in the 50s and 60s and why how it was maintained then because it was a different environment. The population needed, had different I guess needs at that time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's, man, that's, that's just, that's really interesting for sure. Yeah. Diet diet would be an important thing too. Like I said, I, I, a few, so when we do our diet studies, it's a bit different than what your, your other researchers are doing because what I do is when I radio mark the animals, I let them do their things for about four months. And then I can tell which ones are residents and which ones are transients. And the animals that we have known home ranges on, the, the residents, we go into their territories and collect their scats. And then I can assign their scats to packs. So your typical, you know, diet study that looks at, that collects scat and, and does, the, um, does the analysis that way, they treat scats as their sampling unit. So if you collect a thousand scats, you have a thousand samples. They don't discriminate where they got those scats from, whereas I use packs as my sampling unit. So if I collect a thousand scats from 20 packs, my sample size is 20. So um, what I'm being able to do for a few of the black animals is that I had packs with black animals in it. I could say this pack, you know, I can assign diet to them. It's a small, I don't talk, I think it's like two or three packs, but they seem to hit deer too, a little bit more than, than what your gray ones are doing. But uh, it's a small sample. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that they are. Um, but I think that's something worth doing going in the future. If you do have these black animals, maybe some diet work. Um, the best way at that's probably isotope analyses. So if you get a black animal, pull that fur and then and then send that off and see what what their isotope what their uh, values are, and then you can deduce whether or not they're eating, you know, anthropogenic food sources or you know subsisting off you know deer or or um, or, or, or fruit or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, that would definitely definitely be interesting to to see for sure. And before we wrap up, I guess is there any, anything else about black coyotes or your your research project that that we've left out that might be of interest to our, our listeners? Not not that I can think of in terms of black coyotes, um, but in terms of research, the stuff that we're working on here at the Wolf Conservation Center is um, yeah, continuing the coyote research and using coyotes as a sort of a surrogate species to identify future reintroduction sites for red wolves. And it's usually tied into like um, mortality risk and what coyotes are dying of. 
Um, basically, you have coyotes everywhere, so you can assess their population to see are they dying of roadkill, are they getting shot, trapped most of the time, is there any prevalence of disease? And that would help inform us in terms of what would happen to red wolves if we were to put them on the ground there in terms of what they would die of and stuff like that. So we are using, you know, coyotes to sort of locate and identify potential reintroduction sites. Yeah, a lot going on, but that's about it. Can't think of anything else. (laughs) Okay. Well, Joy, I appreciate you taking time out to come on the show here and and talk coyotes with us. I've I've enjoyed it, and I know our, our listeners will will as well. It's, it's just a, a fascinating topic, and uh, I guess I don't. I've never got to see a black coyote uh, in the field. I've, I think I've gotten one on trail camera, maybe once or twice, but, but hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'll get the uh, opportunity to do so at some point. Yeah, yeah. Used to go to some dark, shady areas and get your cameras up, but it's it's the same thing. I had. Um, I had just caught them in traps. Um, but then the first and only time I saw a black coyote was one c- crossing the perimeter uh, in Athens when I was a PhD student there. It's the only time I've seen a black coyote without me catching it. It was just it ran in front of my truck. So <laughs> in front of that was it. Yeah, same here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess they are uh, They are good at staying in, staying in those shadows. So. Yeah, they are, definitely. <laughs> well, good deal. Man. I, I appreciate it, and uh, thank you for your time. Yeah, same here, Brian. It was good meeting you, and uh, hopefully talk to you soon. All right, that wraps up our interview with Dr. Joey Hinton. Uh, Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts. You should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. And, uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, If it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.